Hey, yo, it's Gabby. Uh, really quick before we start the show, I want to ask for your help with something. There are only three episodes left in the first season of Bad With Money. And for the season finale, I want to hear from you guys. So send an email or a voice memo to badwithmoney at slate.com and tell me some ways the show's helped you be better with money, made you worse with money, just how it made you feel. Share your own stories about money. Um, just anything you want to tell us about the show. And we're going to share the responses on the air. So let me hear them. Badwithmoney at slate.com. Thanks. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Picture hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Gabby Dunn and I am bad with money. This is my show about that. Today on the show, we're talking to Sarah Benincasa, who is the author of many books, the host of many podcasts, and an all-around brilliant comedian and writer. She's also one of my friends, and I've read all her books, because she's my friend, but also because she's a good writer. She's also a survivor of some of the most intense emotional traumas you can imagine. And she came out the other side, just a beautiful phoenix risen from the ashes. As we talked about so much on this show, money anxiety can take you to a lot of incredibly dark places. And I relate to Sarah a bunch in terms of the mental health struggles that come with financial insecurity. I had a terrible, terrible nervous breakdown in the summer, I think of 2012 or 2013. I can't even remember. I've blacked it out of my memory. But I ended up having to go home and I lived at home for a little bit. Um, because I couldn't take care of myself. And the biggest problem during that time was that I felt like I should be working. So I was like literally having a breakdown, but I was concerned about the time lost in terms of making money. And I knew that when I got back on my feet, and when I got back to New York, I wasn't going to have any money and that it was all my fault because I was mentally unstable and because I wasn't able to take care of myself mentally. I ended up going on medication, which I'm still on now. And like, you know, it would have been the same if I had broken my leg. But to me, it felt worse because people understand when you break your leg. And people don't understand when you can't work because you literally can't get up off the couch because you're shaking. That's literally your body saying you you can't work. You're done working. You've worked too much. But it's hard to do when you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. And you know that if you take the time off you are going to suffer later because you're not going to be able to buy the food that you want. So we're going to talk to Sarah Benincasa about all this stuff. Um, She wrote a lot about that kind of thing, like I said, in her book, Real Artists Have Day Jobs. And she joins us in studio right after the break. I think that money stuff affected my mental health and mental health affected my money stuff. Absolutely. I think that at this point in time, I'm actively dealing with the repercussions of having been in my 20s and living in New York City and pursuing my dream as a comedian and um, working different jobs during mm-hmm. the day and then you doing have, comedy like, at night. tons of jobs. Though. I do. You I still have, have tons like, of jobs. Yeah. A zillion jobs. <laughs> and yet... I've never been in a place where I felt financially comfortable. So Mm -hmm. I've taken money from family, which I've been in a seat of privilege to be able to do that. 
I've taken money from credit cards, which is a really like not a great idea. That's my I, issue. I absolutely have, you know, a ton of credit card debt. I have student loan debt from um, uh, I did a master's in um, high school teaching mm-hmm. at Columbia, a teacher's college. And I love that I went there and I'm very glad that I went there. But I have debt mm-hmm. and I've been working on some different things in my life. I don't buy a bunch of fancy stuff. Right. But um, what I do do is buy things for other people when it is perhaps not necessary. Like so, what? Well, like I paid somebody's rent once. <laughs> like <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I felt bad. You know, it's it's a lot of it has to do with codependency. Yeah. And, you know, I'm an Al-Anon, um, which is Me for... Me too. Oh, oh, good times. Hey. <laughs> we're just like, we're like yeah. an anonymity, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so I was talking to, I was talking to someone today about this and they were asking what Al-Anon is. They were like, is it AA? And I was like, no, no, um, it is for people who uh, are related to or close to or love. It's for people who love or have loved someone who was um, an alcoholic or an addict. Mm-hmm. And but beyond that, you deal with codependency, which I used to think was just a joke word, but it's actually a real thing. <laughs> and yeah, or like wanting to take care of or fix. So like you're with the person who is messed up and you're like, I will be the person to pay for this. I will be the person mm-hmm. to like fix this. I will be I will pay for I will find you a therapist. Mm-hmm. I will call the therapist for you. Yep. I'll put you in touch. I will take all the steps. I will call a social worker. I will do the, you right. know, just do all of the things. And and for so long, I thought that I was just um, a good person. And I am a great person, <laughs> but I am also someone who is addicted to appearing to be angelic and wonderful. The addiction to helping is not coming always from a genuine place. It's coming from a place of like... If I take care of you, you you won't leave me. I mean, my dad talked about how he was an actual, like he was a, an addict, alcoholic, and he's still dealing with the financial repercussions of that. And I think a lot of mental health, like in your 20s, especially you, I'm not out of my 20s yet, so I still have two more years to fuck up. Yeah. But like, <laughs> but like that you then have to deal with the financial repercussions of taking care of your mental health in your 20s you do and you have to deal with the repercussions of not following the Susie orman model which is like yes you can between the ages of 1834 when you're young fabulous and broke use your credit cards to cover the gaps but you must pay off your credit card bill every month and you know that's impossible for a lot of us yeah and that's her, what so she says to do her well her advice is great it's great advice but most people don't use it in a smart way. So I read the book um, mm-hmm. and then I proceeded to not do the good things. So so for me, I'm I'm not a financial I'm not I'm fortunate because I have parents who can help me and mm-hmm. I um, am someone who has you know, I have four books out. I have a few yeah, projects a in development. I do. I work really, really hard. But in our world of freelancing um that means you're chasing checks a lot yeah so i'll get what feels like a ton of money at once and it's not really to most people but it feels like a lot to me and then nothing for a while and i spend a lot of time chasing down checks for 150 dollars. <laughs> right and you have to email them four or five like you're like come on i like just yeah. send it it was six months ago i wrote this for you right and and so i'm in a place right now where i've just been um updating the hell 
the Hulk. I tried to say heck and hell at the same time. The Hulk. The Hulk out of my LinkedIn because I have started. Yeah, because I've started um, doing like writing branded content more and okay. doing more kind of advertising type stuff. And I want to expand it more because I genuinely enjoy it and always have, which people are like, ew. And I'm like, no, there's money in them there, Hills. And I actually... I enjoy storytelling in various ways and I enjoy it the most when I feel like I'm helping someone or I feel like I'm getting tons of money. And <laughs> so I actually like I like writing. I like somebody going, okay, this is a widget company. Um, write a blog post to make it sound awesome. And I go, okay. And they pay yeah. me a ton of money to do that and it's great. And so I want to do more and more of that. I'm, I mean, my book, Real Artists Have Day Jobs, is I, I wrote it in part to for myself to remind myself like yeah making money's awesome and i'm still an artist even if i'm working for some giant corporation selling widgets as well <laughs> that's cool too as long as you do your art you're an artist i'm not saying anyone's you're a good artist but if you do it you're an artist do people think because you're working so much and you you're very transparent about the stuff that you're working on do you think people view you as wealthy yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think there are some people who just think um, I'm like a spoiled rich kid. And then there are some people who think that I am a self-made wealthy person. And they're both a little bit right and a little bit wrong. <laughs> no, so so they're not they're not entirely, you know, uh, on the money either In way. In what sense are you each one? Well, um, I uh, have been seeing a new psychiatrist mm -hmm. and I worked out a, a payment plan that um, that works or I can pay her full fee, just not all at once. Right. So that's good. And um, and my parents um, helped me out with that for sure. They, they definitely pay for probably 75 percent of, of, of that psychiatrist. To some people who are listening, that's going to sound like spoiled rich kid shit. And to other people, they're going to go, but that's your doctor. That's what your family should do. You would do that for your kids. So it all depends on somebody's um, it all depends on somebody's opinion of what spoiled means. Yeah. Or how bitter and sad they are. <laughs> right. How bitter and sad they are. Or how or how how they value um, the concept of of mental health care. Right. For, like it might not. Oh, it's not worth it for you to be in therapy or something. There are some people who people would who that. would hear that and would say, oh, God, that's one of you have to go We're talk about your feelings. We're all depressed. We're all anxious. Yeah. Privileged so, piece of shit. So I guess that's what I, I um, that's what I mean. And um, so there's validity to all of those opinions. My opinion is that I'm very fortunate and grateful to your point about the part where people think, oh, well, she's entirely self-made. Um, well, that is also, that's not true. But the part of it that is true is that I work really, really hard and I do carry a lot of, of debt and pay a lot of bills yeah, myself but they like think a grown you're, They think you're getting more money. Like they think, oh, they oh think if, I'm rich. if you sold yeah. a book, you're wealthy. So if you've sold four books, you are you must be a millionaire. Yeah. And I've sold five, my friends. My next one comes out next year. Can it doesn't have a title. Talk about the reality of making money from stuff like that. So with a book, typically what happens is that you get um, an advance. And so you get an advance. Uh, you get half of it generally up top mm -hmm. upon signing. Then you have to deliver a publishable manuscript um, within a set period of time. And so that does not mean any old manuscript. That can mean a manuscript that they that they like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And then once it goes, it's in tip top shape. It hasn't, it hasn't like before it goes to copy edits and stuff. But once you and your editor have agreed on it and they're like, this is awesome. Let's send it ahead to production where they start to make it look good. Mm -hmm. um, That's generally the point at which your agent um, says, if you, if, if, if you're working with an agent says, okay, time to give me the second half of that money. Um, (laughs) And then the idea is that once you make back, once your book makes back that advance for the company, then you start to earn royalties. Yeah. Um, and I have never earned royalties on on any of my books. Like stores are full of books. It's not like every single one has made every person a bajillionaire. Oh my god! Of course not. No, the people I know for sure who have made royalties on their like I'm thinking J.K. About, Rowling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm th- I was thinking about it the other day. I thought, who do I know? What what authors I know critically acclaimed authors? I know these amazing authors. Like who do I know for sure has made royalties? And like my answer is Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Yeah, like, he's my friend who's made money off of his That's books. it. And I have all like you know, I have friends who, um, who who are these awesome women. They won prizes and awards and all kinds of stuff. And like, that's someone who I comfortably can say, like, yes, Neil has made royalties right. off some there's stuff a, in his day. Like in Good Omens, did okay. There's he's a doing difference fine. between success and financial viability. Yes. Um. So I wanted to yeah talk about self care a little bit, which you talk about in your book, Real Artists Have Day Jobs. So you have this really beautiful chapter called It Gets Better Mostly, um, and it talks about the anxiety and depression that you've always had. But one of the things is when you talk about how depression kept you from being able to do creative work. And I think for a lot of creative people, it's hard to acknowledge that you have to stop working and take care of yourself. I mean, mental health wise, but also even if I have the flu, I'm like, I can't I can't stop. Yeah, well, I think that we do it for a few reasons. One is that we need to to pay our bills. Two is that it is a distraction from the pain that we're in. Yeah. And three is that sometimes we're addicted to it. Sometimes we're and I, I don't mean to throw around the the idea of addiction lightly. I certainly meant it when I said that I, you know, am addicted to helping. Mm-hmm. I certainly meant that. Um in this sense, let's say perhaps let's I'll walk it back and say not addicted, but um we're so tied to our identity being connected with work. If I'm not working, who am I? Work, what if work is the only thing that I have that makes me me? Right. I don't have a reason to leave the house or and what's my identity? A lot of times mm-hmm. I would <laughs> I was so focused on the part on Facebook where it was like job. Yeah. And I would think all the time like if I don't have something in that thing on Facebook, who even am I? Mm-hmm, and I was absolutely. like so focused on it. Yeah. I, I nuked my personal Facebook page recently, although I'm still at Facebook.com slash official Sarah Ben <laughs> Um and which it's official because my old manager named it, which was really sweet. <laughs> but like I'm like, mm, there's no other unofficial Sarah Ben But um I nuked it for a few reasons, and one reason was that I was so distracted by it by um, like keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, the abundance of information. I well, there were a few things like one is as a woman, sometimes on the Internet, we get rape and death threats. It's mm-hmm. fun. It's a part of our lives. Just that we girly deal with. things. Just, just girly, girly things. <laughs> just girly things like doing your hair and getting threatened with rape and death. And so that I got tired of reporting that. That yeah. was boring after a few times. And then um, also it was distracting. And so I was getting less of my work done and therefore not getting money on time because um, you're not going to get it on time anyway. So I may as well <laughs> meet deadlines. And then another reason was like, I don't need this much access to other people's lives. I really don't. Yeah. And all, but and I was, felt like I was like peacocking all the time. Like I need to even when Twitter first came out, I was like, I need to have in my bio like at Comedy Central employee at, you know, like mm-hmm. I need to like. Yeah, no, I feel that too. Seem I'm like I'm tied to something. Otherwise, people will go, well, what the fuck is she doing? That's why I like 
having the professional page because that's the place where people expect you to peacock and brag <laughs> and be like, this is what I'm doing. I think I, I have a lot of I get a lot of feedback that I do so much and people go, you work so hard. And that is true. But I sometimes feel like it creates a false like we were just it, it creates a false image. And, and some people love promoting this false image about themselves. But um, for me. Uh, you know it doesn't just being frenetic activity does not equal happiness and it certainly doesn't equal financial wealth yeah but I mean even before I knew you like I felt like you were someone who posted all the time about work you were doing and then I would go not just you specifically but like other people and then I would go well I'm a piece of shit like look at Sarah Benicasa like I suck but I think I was also um one thing to remember about people like that is that sometimes they're operating from a place of like I for, uh, of a, something from an unhealthy place, and I certainly was at times. Um, I think people are a lot of times. It's occurred to me later that people are lying, not you, mm-hmm. but like other people, or exaggerating. Like other people, like I'll be like, "Well, this person sold a book, so I'm a fucking garbage person," and then I'll like actually talk to them, and they'll be like, "Oh no, I'm just writing a book." Like I haven't, <laughs> and I'm like, "You're like, oh, you on. gave me like literally you." I was like in a spiral for an hour about your success, but which you is also, awful. I also have to like not be well, so jealous. Well, you also have to keep your eyes on your own paper. We yes. all get jealous. We all get envious. For me, it's it's not, it's never, I've never really been somebody who gets a lot of professional jealousy, but personal jealousy, absolutely. Really? I have none of that. I know. That's what's so exciting about <laughs> you to me is that you're not a jealous person. I mean, I think if you can use the energy of professional jealousy and use that to power yourself forward because you are so successful and you do so much and it's really cool and use that to power yourself forward that can be a great energy i think personal jealousy is a trickier beast because what do you do with that like how do you you know how do you how do you deal with feeling possessive of other human beings and and things like that um you know that that's been my struggle in my own life but um professionally it really hasn't been i think i think part of that comes from being a a big fan and like being a dork but the fan thing has been great for me because I some one of the chapters of my book is I think write fan letters because I've gotten a lot of great things out of just telling people how much I like their stuff so I wanted to talk about one of the other chapters in your book and there's a part here that I was wondering if you could read is it called a vagina is not a time machine no that's a great that's a fun one thank you and yeah. then you can talk about it if you read it. Sure, sure. This is called Feel All the Feelings. Um, and it says, The most annoying thing about feelings is that they will emerge one way or another, regardless of how hard you try to get rid of them. You can try to drink them away, smoke them away, fuck them away, snort them away, eat them away. You can put a needle in your arm or cut yourself or walk into a bar and punch the first guy who looks at you funny. I don't suggest doing any of these things. I've done a few of them. They don't work. Eventually, the levy breaks. Eventually, you feel what you pretended not to feel so i feel like uh we it's come up on this show a bunch that i've used money specifically spending quantities of it i don't actually have or as like a way to subvert bad feelings and we actually talked to sarah schaefer about this too about using it like like i think and it's come up a bunch as like money being related to substance abuse and stuff um so do you think money falls into this category that you're talking about of like spending and and trying to you know, money buying happiness, as it were. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Any compulsive behavior is a distraction. Mm-hmm. And um, so certainly compulsive spending can be a distraction. I have gone through times in my life where I've gone on a real Etsy spree. Yeah. And it's, we all pick our poison. And for me, it's the charm of this illusory handmade existence that I can purchase <laughs> from a housewife in, in Iowa 
and I will do that. And or, oh, do you live in a charming craftsman home and make reclaimed leather hand tooled like dildos? Cool. My friend needs six of those. Like I certainly came from a family in which I had parents with two very different money styles. And um, what were they? Uh, dad, mom is a spender. Dad's a saver. Mm-hmm. And so I have I've certainly used money like that in the past. Um, I t- for me, it tends to be. It has tended to be more relationships, love, relationships, sex. It's tied together, too, I was thinking when you were talking about love and and relationships, because I definitely went a couple times when relationships were about to end and I knew they were going to end. I bought the other person something extravagant Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, yeah, like you break up anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Like I said, I paid someone's rent. Yeah. I I had um, with an ex-boyfriend, I would always I would get him gifts and I would try so hard to get him things that he was into, you know, like brand things, um, TV shows that he loved, things like that. His favorite authors, his favorite poets. And it was never he always had to make fun of the gift. It was never good enough. It was never right. And he would go, "Mm, you're you're a really funny gift giver. And it's like I would try so hard. And that was our whole relationship was me trying really hard. And to fix things in the relationship or to fix gaps in affection like my ex-girlfriend I would buy her stuff all the time just to be like well I know that you don't think I'm affectionate enough so yeah here's a necklace and a shirt here's a thing that I can do for you that isn't uh the the, here's a token yeah how I feel about you you, and because then you can't be mad at me when I'm not affectionate to you because I just bought you something oh that's really interesting yeah I guess I've done that after the fact when I feel like I fucked up in some way what sucks is that when you realize it's it's not going to come back. You know, it took me spending a lot of close time in a short period of time with somebody who just took, 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 took yeah. for me to really understand, like, um, oh, I, I have a problem mm-hmm. because I'm just give this person is taking and taking and taking and I'm giving and giving and giving. And I keep doing it, even though I, I'm starting to see what this person is doing. Mm-hmm. And why am I still doing it? I think a lot of times feeling like really broke when you're working hard as an artist is tough because there's not a lot of like obvious ways to fix the problem and I guess I want to talk about like why you wrote the like it seems like an a uh, real artist have day jobs would be an obvious sentence but it is super not an obvious no sentence. it's not and people take so people, people take different feeling, things like it. guilty about it and like why you called the book that and you know yeah I wanted people to feel affirmed and validated as artists if you do your art you're an artist if you if, if you do your sport people you're think, an athlete people think once I become a good enough artist I will not need extra income uh, yeah that's not true you know they people have a ma- very magical dream of how it works I did when I was a little kid I thought that uh, if you once you wrote a book you were rich and that's not we don't value art in the society that way necessarily you you can be rich if what you make makes other people money and so tom cruise my best friend is rich because what he does makes other people a shitload of money and it's been that way for a long long time so um but if you're you know one person show about your feelings when i've done one doesn't make other people money you're probably not going to get rich off it right because people aren't going to invest in it people aren't going to push it you know um there's a reason that Kickstarter exists now and I love it and Indiegogo and GoFundMe and all that jazz and um, I you know I funded I did a short film that I just dropped online yeah it was great it was great I watched Thank it you. I watched an advanced copy because Sarah and I are friends I just want everyone in the listening Heck audience yes. to know that we're friends so. it's called we're friends it's called the, <laughs> it's called the focus group and 
we tried to raise I tried I wanted to raise nine grand and I raised 20 and we still went over that budget. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but, you know, 500 people around from around the world contributed to this idea about a woman focus grouping her own body. And they responded to that. And I no feel, one was going to no one's going to pay me to do no. that. But Allison and I sometimes feel very we get told to do crowdfunding and we do Patreon, but we feel like a, a little or I personally feel a little embarrassment about like asking for money in that way. I still have this mentality of like, well, if it's any good, someone will give me money to do it. No, not true. I know. And also, I think especially for something like what you did with Focus Group and like the queer content and stuff that I want to make, it's like people that are giving that money are like starved for content about Mm -hmm. women like you, women like me. And so so your own content, they are like, fine, I'll pay for what I need because I'm not getting it from mainstream Hollywood. Absolutely. I mean, nobody was Coca-Cola was not knocking down my door to do product (laughs) placement in my movie about being a woman who takes off her clothes in front of a focus group to find out how she can improve herself right for some reason they didn't respond to the material but (laughs) and so i think what you just said is a really great point which is that our communities want to see more of of themselves and more of us they people want to see representation and so they're willing to throw down for it and i think that's great yeah i think that's cool is art undervalued and our artists underpaid yeah Absolutely. But I still think doctors should make the most money. You know, like, (laughs) really? How can you say that? Like, I'm really good at writing and I'm amazing. And my work could bring about a change in your emotional state or just make you laugh at a dick joke. But I can't fucking take your colon out and make your life better. So I feel fine with um, (laughs) that. There's a hierarchy there. Um, I don't think artists should be at the bottom of the pile the way that we basically almost are now. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that there should be more subsidies for artists. I think there should be better funding. I think that there should be... Um, an abundance in this country of of free and low cost, excellent mental health care, which we do not have. Right. You know, all of these things are wonderful dreams that I have. Uh, but in reality, um, you know, it, it sucks. And that's why real artists often have day jobs and it's OK. And the idea of the starving artist is disgusting garbage. It has starving in the title. Starving is terrible. If yeah. you think it's cool to be a starving artist, you've never actually starved. Like, you're an idiot. <laughs> and so the idea of, like, I just live in this, like, I just want to do my art. All of my, my friends feelings. when I first moved to New York, all of my, like, Lower East Side, like, friends who I don't even know any of their last names. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know what I mean? right. Yeah, just, dude. Get a fucking job at Subway Get a and job. make it happen. It's great. I was talking to a friend last night who said she was dating this dude. And he said, he was like, oh, oh, I'm not making enough money. And she said, oh, well, you can get a job. You know, no, you're not making enough money for comedy, but you can you can get a job. You're you're reasonably smart. And uh, then, he, But you know and what? He was like, but then I can't do my art. And she was like, get a fucking job. I do my art all the time. I have right. MFA. You have to get a Like, you have to also do your art. Like, you got to like. That's yeah, it. and I think for most people, that's a You're no gonna brainer. You're going to work harder than everyone else. But there is this precious, adorable subsection of humanity that tends to gravitate to New York and Los Angeles <laughs> that was told that they were the best. Yes. the You were so good in your school's production of Fiddler on the Roof. You were like the best sister. Um, so you are going to be a star. And then they think that. And people have been trying lately. I, I did 22 radio interviews in six hours, which was insane. Whoa. It's a radio tour. And I did that for Real Artists of Day Jobs. And a couple of times people kept trying to, like, draw out of me, like, millennial shit talking. They were like, well, they have these kids today. And I was like, oh, my God, you're in terrestrial radio. That's terrible. I'm so sorry that that's Kids are working harder than anyone. Millennials yeah. are working harder 
I mean, I'm sorry. I was like, your intern. They were they were basically talking shit about their interns who were in the room. Well, they were talking about entitlement. They were like, these kids are so entitled. They think everything should just come to them. And I was like, sure, some people are like that. But that's always been true. Of every generation. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of My dad just, like, roamed around in a van, like, for, like, years after college. And, like, no, and, like. That's, you know, and didn't have any plan. It didn't work and didn't like that's He's you such know. an entitled millennial. Right. Oh, Gabby's dead. Yeah, I I said He's um, an entitled millennial currently at age 70. A lot of them think I said, you know, what is true is that I think a lot of the people who are millennials um, grew up in an era where fame is really easily achievable and that fame is a different kind of currency than it used to be. And so if it is upsetting to someone that someone can be famous, but um, but not talented in a way that they like, then, yeah, OK, I can see what you're saying. But um, and there is sort but of also a, who cares. But who cares? Like, why do you care? And then I remembered I used to have a job in radio and it's terrible. Um, pod- <laughs> podcasts are great. And um, that, you know, you just have to fill time because yeah. it's 15 minutes and drive time in Denver and, and you hate your life. So you have this chapter in your book called When You Don't Know What to Do, Ask a Successful Woman. Yes. And I get this a lot, too, is people go, well, how did you get that? And I loved what you said about it. Can you explain why asking that question is fucked up? Yeah, it's fucked up because when somebody says, oh, how'd you get that? That implies that I can tell you in the course of our casual interaction um, or that I care to. And that it, you or want that you, you want me got to... it. I think it's that you got it in some tricky way. Well, it's the idea that that I can give you the keys to the kingdom and that I would want to and that I would want to give you the roadmap to my success. I'm not I'm not like holding it to my bosom tightly <laughs> like, no, I won't tell anybody. But um, it implies and women get asked it more than men. How do you get that? Yes, because and I'll sometimes the emphasis is you. How do you get that? Yes. And I don't know a shitload of hard work or do you want me to say I sucked a bunch of dicks do, would that be better for you like what do you fucking want from me and it is it's condescending a better way to do it is to say hey I really admire the job you did this is incredible um, do not say pick your brains that's so annoying you should instead say hey love what you did it's really cool here's a specific thing that shows you that I actually absorbed what you did and I'm not just being a piece of shit um, I would love to ask you some advice as a beginner. What, what what do you think is important? If I feel like you are just asking me to tell you how to be, to achieve some level of fame, um, there's a lot of places where you can learn that. I lay it out in my book of what I did and it it's I think it starts with a suicidal nervous breakdown. It just right. kind of goes from there. It's like, I don't know, man. My first book was about wanting to kill myself and being so afraid to leave my bedroom that I pissed in bowls. Like, so you could do that. It would be <laughs> derivative at this point. It would be hacky because I did it already. But, I, you know, I can't tell you what your path is. It's I can say what I say is look at a successful woman and then and either ask her for advice or... Or um, look at the people who you admire the most and then do what they did. And that doesn't mean copy their content because you'll get sued, but it means make some of those choices. So when I wanted to be a great stand-up, which I never achieved, uh, but I was an okay one, I looked at what Margaret Cho did. And when I also looked at, realized I wanted to transition more into storytelling and a more theatrical performance, I looked at what Margaret did. I looked at what Mike Birbiglia did. I looked at what John Leguizamo did. And when, and throughout, as I was thinking about writing, I looked at a few different people. I mean, I looked at Neil, not that anything I do is as wonderful as his or that we have much in common 
like in terms of style. But um, I looked at what he did and the fact that he had a diverse career in different capacities of writing was was impactful on me. And I saw that with a lot of different people. And you have a chapter in the book where you talk about radical overconfidence, which mm-hmm. is a thing that you and I both, I think, have. Yeah, we're great at it. And um, people, people really respond to it. Yeah. Can you talk about like believing in the greatness of your work? Yeah. And the balance, because Allison has told me sometimes that it's very off-putting. <laughs> Well, I think that I don't promise anything that I don't honestly believe I can deliver on. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of like Just Between Us is a uh, changing the face of sketch comedy on YouTube. Like I'll do like these big and Allison will be like, you have to stop like (laughs) overselling us. And I'm like, if we don't believe that we're the best thing in female duo sketch comedy on YouTube, nobody else is going to believe that. Yeah, that's what I I, if you're not if I don't advocate for myself, what sometimes comedians um, who are like I had a few I have a couple of former friends who are like um, they don't I don't think they know their former friends they may have noticed I just stopped paying attention to them right but like the, they were comedians and they were real underminers because they were upset at that I was getting things because they were jealous bitter people and it wasn't so much about me as about them yeah. not working hard enough or being talented enough and that's not my problem um, but they would say things like why are you really like promoting yourself a lot like, oh I get of, that too you're kind of hitting it too hard and I was like that's cool I'm also paying my bills this way and I'm enjoying my life so I had to get rid of those people um, and the book has a chapter called life is too short for shitty friends which I highly recommend it it explores different methods of getting rid of garbage friends <laughs> of different kinds of garbage we had friends. that too a lot of times when I first started promoting my work a lot I had friends that were very off put by it yeah well you're a woman and you're not supposed to make yourself big and they think it's obnoxious and snotty and whatever but fuck them you're the one doing great Allison makes fun of me all the time because I'll be like this episode I'll like tweet like this episode is so funny and she'll be like it's weird that you do that because we wrote it and I'm like <laughs> yeah and I think we're very funny yeah Yo, we, you need you need to you know, I don't think I'm the funniest person in the world. I don't think I'm the best writer in the world. I don't think I'm the hottest person in the world. I'm not delusional, but I know I'm great. Yeah. And it took a long time for me to get there, and nobody gets to take that away from me. Can you read the... So you see the part where it says for an ender? So here's an excerpt from my book, Real Artists of Details. Do you make art because it's fun? Would you make art regardless of whether anybody paid you to make art? Do you stay up at night after the kids have gone to sleep when you really ought to be in bed yourself or at least doing laundry just because it gives you a few precious minutes to make art? Do you make art that some people love? Do you make art that some people hate? Do you make art that some people ignore? Then congrats, Latov, my friend. You are a real artist. When I was 23, I decided to become a high school teacher in order to support myself as a writer. And so I taught high school in the Southwest, and no one published anything I wrote, though I tried to convince them it was a good idea. I was a real writer then. I was also a real writer when I was an assistant working at a law firm specializing in immigration for fashion models. Truly the Lord's work. I was a real writer when I worked at a company in the South Bronx in a neighborhood so violent we were required to sign out of work no later than 4 p.m. so that we could reach the subway before nightfall. I was a real writer when I worked at a fancy pet boutique on the Upper East Side, where customers spent upwards of $300 on luxurious cat beds, and eccentric women came into the shop pushing puppies and prams. I was a real writer when I worked at Planned Parenthood. I was a real writer when I hosted and produced a satellite radio talk show about sex and love and dating five nights a week. I was a real writer when the show got canceled and I collected unemployment, and I was a real writer when I worked at a startup, and I was a real writer when I quit the startup to write full-time. 
I am a real writer now, and I will be a real writer until I die. Whether or not I always do this as my full-time job. I have had day jobs in the past, and I have no reason to believe I will not have day jobs in the future. Uh, I love Sarah. I don't know anyone who doesn't. And if you do, I don't know why you listen to this podcast. That's weird. You probably have a rage boner. I mean, a thing that I think about Sarah a lot is the self-promo stuff, which we talked about in our interview. She promotes herself more than anyone. And some people find it off-putting. But I always think, you know, if Sarah does it and it gets her to where she needs to go and it helps people, helps other people value her work, then why shouldn't I value my work? And why shouldn't I ask to be paid the amount that I think I deserve to be paid and value my work the amount that I think it deserves to be valued? Because that's how you get paid what you deserve. So I always look to Sarah as inspiration for that. And years ago, when I didn't even know her and I just saw her and wanted to be her friend and thought, like, followed her on Twitter and thought about the day that we might be friends, uh, it was because I admired her hustle and her work ethic. And she has still got it. No one writes five books in the short amount of time that she's been writing books. I don't know when she sleeps. And um, I've got to turn that resentment or jealousy that I used to have over that into like pure admiration for her. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, and tell all your friends who are also bad with money. Also, feel free to tell your friends who have the kind of day jobs that involve three martini lunches and staff retreats to Ojai. Whoever you are, please hire me to your company. We are part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is the beautiful Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Our engineer is Jeremy Underwood. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. I'm Gabby Dunn, but I hope you knew that by the time you reach this part of the podcast, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>